0: Going viral on the internet is a bizarre phenomenon which has no formula. So back in 2015, even a striped dress got its own five minutes of fame. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this story, this striped dress was interpreted by some as being blue with black stripes, by others as being gold and white. So why the differences? Well, it's all down to perception. Theories have suggested that perhaps these different perceptions are based on what people expected and that people who saw a black and blue garment may spend most of their time surrounded by artificial light, whereas those who saw it white and gold may have been more exposed to natural daylight, perhaps. But it shows how our own personal experiences can affect our perceptions, literally colour them. So, for today's installment of the Curiosity Vault from the University of Birmingham, we're going to be looking at this phenomenon of perception how we see the world around us and how we each see it a little differently. How do our experiences impact our perceptions of reality? Let's open up the vault. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and today's guests are Dr Emma Sullivan-Bissett, who is a reader in philosophy. Her research concerns the nature of belief and its connection to truth, including delusional beliefs and Dr Emma chernis a clinical psychologist. Her research currently focuses on understanding dissociative experiences from a cognitive behavioural perspective. And Emma chernis is joining us from afar. You're in Seoul, I understand. And it's very, very late.
1: It is. It's about midnight here, but it was worth it for the conference and to speak to you. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. And I think this is going to be a fascinating discussion about how we understand the world around us. I want to start with with you, Emma, about your research on delusion. So before we start thinking about how we form beliefs, what is a delusion? Yeah, so you started with a
2: really difficult question. So, <laughs> um, I mean, according to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, delusions are kind of bizarre beliefs which are highly resistant to counter evidence. But that's really not going to distinguish them from lots of other beliefs that we might think about. So one example is the Capgras delusion. So if I have that delusion, then I believe that a loved one has been replaced by an imposter. So I might look at my son and I say, gosh, that looks a lot like my son, but it's not my son. It's a cleverly disguised alien who, you know, has sinister motives against me. Uh, Another kind of delusion is the Kotal delusion. So that's the delusion that one is dead or has ceased existing. So that's kind of self-explanatory. That's particularly weird because if I can sit here and say to you that I am dead... Mm. then. That's kind of good evidence that I'm not right. Um, but those are the kinds of beliefs that I'm interested in. Extremely strange, bizarre occur in the clinical population.
0: Okay, well, we'll get onto the borders between delusions and beliefs that we can trust or beliefs that seem reasonable later on in the discussion, I'm sure. Emma Chernis, can I ask you broadly how our experiences help us to to form beliefs because obviously beliefs about the world around us don't appear out of nowhere they're they're very much kind of embedded in our experience throughout our lives
1: yeah absolutely and as a clinical psychologist i suppose one of the most helpful frameworks that i use to understand this is coming from cognitive behavioral therapy so aaron beck in the 60s came up with this kind of really helpful explanatory mechanism um, that said our early experiences really influence how we see the world around us and then those beliefs kind of act as a lens that we see the world through so we begin to see what we expect to see and that can be self-reinforcing and I suppose since then we've also thought more about the biological side of how we form beliefs and the genetic kind of loading but also the social side and cultural beliefs so it's quite a complex way that we come to form our beliefs
0: It's very complex, isn't it? Because, of course, we are intensely cultural animals, that it's not an individual human experiencing the world. It's an individual human with another lot of humans around them experiencing the world together.
1: Absolutely. And we're communicative creatures as well. We need to talk to each other. And sometimes, I don't know who's had the experience of being a bit confused by something, maybe in a lecture or in a school class. And the first thing you do is go to a friend and try and puzzle it out together. And sometimes beliefs can be based on what we kind of talk about amongst ourselves and try and figure out together as humans as well.
0: We're off to a great start, but I did ask both of you to bring in an object which says something about yourself or your research. So let's start here in the studio. Emma, what what have you brought along?
2: I have brought along a standard three by three Rubik's Cube. And Rubik's Cubes are really interesting because... The vastness of possibilities is quite mind-blowing. So, apparently, there are forty-three quintillion ways in which a Rubik's cube can be arranged. I'll start doing it now and I'm that... going to scramble
0: this Rubik's cube. Can you do it, Emma?
2: I can do it. Okay. Yeah. I
0: might but, test you at the end.
2: That's fine. It's not going to be particularly impressive. This is the second thing I think is really interesting about Rubik's cubes: is that take all the people who can complete one. There are people like me who can complete it, but not by kind of any great intellectual feat, right? I just sort of know the algorithms, I just apply them by rote. You've just learnt it. Yeah, I just learnt it. And it's, it's a not very impressive thing to watch me do a Rubik's Cube. It takes me a couple of minutes and I can kind of look at you while I'm doing it because I'm just applying the algorithms.
0: It's going to be more impressive than me doing it because I can... <laughs> well, <laughs> can't you're not do it doing it at all. The moment. <laughs> I'm just scrambling it. You are, yeah, yeah.
2: But on the other hand, there are people who sort of come to a cube in any given starting position and use that starting position in their solving it right so the creator of the cube sort of identifies as a member of this second group and says that you know i kind of intuit how to move the thing and he talks about his journey to completion in this wonderful book that he wrote and i think there's a kind of rough analogy here with how we experience the world right so we all experience it well enough to kind of get around we kind of all do okay but Mm. i think if you sort of start to look a little bit closer you see that actually the way in which we engage with the world can be radically different yeah I like the cube for that reason
0: we'll leave that here for now that'll be a little (laughs) challenge for later Emma over the internet in Seoul what object have you got with you
1: I've got a word document and every time I get a bit of unsolicited positive feedback from somebody about my work I save it in there because What I noticed doing my research was that I was getting quite a lot of emails from people saying, you know, I've got dissociation or I've got depersonalization and no one's ever asked me these questions before, or I'm really pleased that this research is being done. And um, I saved them all. And when I was writing up my PhD thesis, I opened it up and in the middle of thinking, why on earth am I doing this? It really gave me a reason to carry on and to feel a bit more motivated. I guess it's a practical way of finding your why you know why are you doing the difficult thing that you started off on the journey of doing I've even called it the file name is motivation
0: that is fantastic and it's something I might steal I think that's such a wonderful idea I, can um, recommend I think it. for anybody don't you I think yeah, absolutely. You know, every time you get a little bit of good feedback to to remember it and not just to remember it but to write it down let's talk about delusions let's let's get into these um some kind of delusions of uh, of grandeur or death or whatever whatever it is we're talking about strange beliefs i mean you've already talked about defining them but i think when you gave us that definition it seemed very it seemed very definite mm. but there's surely a bit of a blurry edge to this because we all have different ideas about the world I mean, you might have some ideas that I consider to be quite delusional. I'm sure I've got quite a few that you might consider to be delusional. We don't have the same ideas, do we? Right. So there's an element of subjectivity, surely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the definition I gave you kind of coming off of the DSM definition has been subject to lots of criticism because it doesn't seem to be doing what we want it to do. It doesn't Mm. seem to be picking out all and only delusions however we try and define it we're going to be able to come up i think with another kind of belief which kind of has that same feature Mm -hmm. so if we say you know delusions are those beliefs which are especially irresponsive to evidence whatever evidence you you show someone with a delusion they just won't respond to it then i might say to you Hey, have you uh, met a conspiracy theorist, right? Because someone who believes that the earth is flat, for example, or that 9 11 was an inside job, seems to me that in at least some of those cases, no amount of evidence is going to move those people either. Mm. And so it looks like we can't do it in terms of evidence responsiveness. Another way we might do it is by talking about, you know, they're especially bizarre, especially strange, but. That doesn't seem right either, because all sorts of people have beliefs in the paranormal, which are pretty weird, right? People who believe in things like telekinesis or spiritual mediumship. That's pretty bizarre. It doesn't seem to me that that's obviously less bizarre than delusional contents. And so I think it's really difficult. And I don't have an answer for you as to how we define delusions. So I always just start with examples it's really hard to kind of draw around the edges and separate those off from other kinds of strange beliefs.
0: And presumably, in terms of defining them, what we're particularly interested in doing is defining whether or not they're healthy or unhealthy, whether or not they help you to be a person in society, yeah, or whether actually you are likely to damage yourself and others. Is that is that the reason for really wanting to be able to define delusions?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people think that it's a very natural thought that delusions are the kinds of things which harm your functioning. And in most cases, that might be right. And and that might help us say that these are a special kind of belief because they harm your functioning. But again, there are also delusions which seem not to harm you, but in fact to help you, right? There are mm. cases where forming a delusion helps you make sense of your experience or it gives you some important sense of identity. It helps you move around the world in the way that you weren't able to before. And, and in your research, how are you trying to understand it? I am interested in thinking about whether forming delusional beliefs is especially irrational or um, whether there's a special kind of problem going on with the way in which people with delusions like process evidence and and form their beliefs on the basis of their perceptual experiences and i want to say that people aren't doing well, right? So they're probably engaging with the evidence in a way that is kind of less than ideal. But I don't think we've got any grounds for thinking that the way in which they're forming beliefs is clinically abnormal, clinically significant, mm-hmm. anything kind of remarkable. And I think when you look across the kind of whole range of beliefs that people form in conspiracies, religious beliefs, paranormal beliefs. I just think it's going to be very difficult to say, no, these ones, these are especially problematic from a kind of cognitive point of view. These Mm -hmm. people are making a special kind of mistake. But the current orthodoxy in philosophy and psychology is to say there is a special kind of mistake going on here. There is something cognitive going on here, which is distinct from strange beliefs in other populations. And I I think Mm -hmm. we should resist that.
0: And I started off introducing the subject today, talking about that infamous dress which is either black and blue or gold and white. And it just seems to divide people completely, apart from a few people who can see it both ways.
2: Yeah. And
0: uh, I don't trust I'm not them. one, I don't either. Um, but you've got a clear example there of something which one set of people could be looking at another set and going, you've got a delusional belief there. This This dress is clearly gold and white. And the other people are saying it's clearly blue and black. What's the difference between delusion and illusion then
2: oh well I guess illusion is is something that you can kind of talk yourself around the word illusion in philosophy at least picks up on um, a kind of feature of one's perceptual experience so things look a way that they're not in fact in reality so if I look at a stick in water and it appears bent to me that would be an illusion because the stick is in fact straight and I guess In lots of cases with illusions you've got those kinds of background beliefs that you can recognise that your perceptual experience is misleading Mm. and you can kind of not be taken in by it. Whereas delusions, well that refers to a particular kind of belief, so something that you endorse rather than something that you merely perceive and can say, I know that it's straight, I perceive it as bent, but I know that it's straight, that's merely an illusion.
0: Mm. A Delusion is, is actually believing something. Okay, we'll come back to delusions, I'm sure. Emma, I want to talk to you a little bit about your research into dissociation. What is it to begin with? What is dissociation in terms of the way that people perceive the world and and themselves in the world? You know, I wish I could answer that. (laughs) Haven't you done a PhD on it, Emma? (laughs) (laughs) I know, and it took
1: me a year to decide what I was measuring. It's one of those questions that's really difficult to answer. So, for example... One of the main assumptions people have is that dissociation is one thing. So it's one problem with a lot of different experiences and symptoms. But we're beginning to sort of wonder whether maybe dissociation might be better thought of as an umbrella term. And actually there are lots of subtypes of experience that are separable, that might respond to treatment differently, that might be caused by different things. And we just haven't really got there yet with answering how many or what kinds of subtypes there are. But to give you an actual answer to your question, I guess, generally, people are accepting that dissociation describes some kind of disconnection from the world around you. And it's really interesting what Emma was saying about illusion and delusion coming down to beliefs. So quite often, think about dissociation being somebody feeling disconnected from the world around them, even though they know they still are. Um, So their body might feel strange to them, or the world around them might appear very odd, but they know objectively that the world hasn't changed that their body hasn't changed they just can't shake this really distressing feeling that maybe it has uh, and then it feels different to them and my work is kind of trying to get some clarity around what kinds of strange and odd experiences that that can take
0: Hmm. and is it linked to any other psychological problems
1: Yeah, so actually it's really interesting talking about delusions today because um, I started my research career in a psychosis research team that was focusing on delusions and paranoia and I got really interested in dissociation because there's a lot of dissociative experiences in people who also have psychotic symptoms. And uh, a few times I've sent my scientific papers off for review and people have come back and said, oh, I think you're describing psychosis. So there is a big overlap between psychotic symptoms and association. Do you know what I'm going to ask
0: you to do now, don't you? Can you define psychosis? I mean, that's another question I'd love to have an answer to.
1: We tend to think of psychosis being, again, a bit of an umbrella term where it includes symptoms like delusions, um, like hallucinations. But there is this kind of loss of, if you speak to kind of people who try and define it in sentence, they would say you sort of lose contact with reality and it's at the level of beliefs. So there really is a belief that there is something odd going on rather than it feeling odd and knowing that it isn't. Psychologists call that insight. So there might be a loss of insight. And we can argue about that because there's such thing as partial insight. But the rule of thumb, I suppose, is if you if you know something's wrong, then it might not be psychosis.
0: This is fascinating as well, because we've already talked about some blurred edges and Mm -hmm. here are some more blurred edges. It seems to be that when we're talking about the brain and the way it works and the way that we construct our reality, it is actually quite difficult to define what is right and what is wrong, what is normal and what is abnormal. That must be a real challenge clinically to identify whether somebody really does need some kind of help, some kind of intervention, or whether actually what they're experiencing is is just what everybody experiences to a certain degree.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's where it's really important to meet people where they're at and talk about how it's affecting their day to day. And I, I suppose what we tend to think of as clinicians is if it's causing people distress or if it's getting in the way of the things that they would really like to be doing in their lives. So maybe getting in the way of school or getting in the way of having friendships or relationships, then that's the time we need to step in and support somebody. But I'd be really interested to hear what Emma thinks, because of course, there are some beliefs that other people might find distressing for you to have that you don't actually think as that important. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of phenomenon of
2: successful psychotics, right? So some people just have beliefs that seem to make them happy, like delusions of grandeur is a really obvious case. So we all have kind of quite high opinions of ourselves right that's sort kind of demonstrated empirically we all think we're kind of better than the average driver or better than the average
0: teacher but I'm definitely better than the average driver
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> me too but we can't all be right about that right well, well, Me too. <laughs> yeah.
0: we're all excellent <laughs> yeah.
2: but delusions of grandeur kind of you know take that a little bit too far but I mean it's really obvious right that you can see how that would provide somebody great comfort to think that they're the best philosopher in the world or or whatever it is right so even though it might be highly irresponsive to evidence uh, it might meet other kind of conditions on delusions it doesn't seem to disrupt functioning in the same way so that's not a kind of way that we can easily draw a line around these things
0: but it can be distressing for other people around them and then we're back looking at how an individual brain is trying to make sense of the, the world and actually how to interpret that and the fact that you're, you're always in society... Do you think it's useful to think of them in terms of that wider
2: culture? Yeah, I think wider culture is really important. A lot of people kind of accuse delusions as being kind of especially irrational or especially weird. And one reason they give for that is that they don't have a cultural grounding, unlike some of the other beliefs that we've talked about, like religion and paranormal and conspiratorial beliefs, Mm. where, you know, loads of my mates have these beliefs as well. and, And that kind of props them up and helps me maintain them in the face of counter evidence. What's really important about, at least some cases of delusion, which is key to the kind of question that we're interested in is that they're often associated with some highly strange experiences. And I think once you think about those, you start to see how it's quite understandable that somebody might come to believe something so strange. Whereas when we think about things like conspiracy beliefs, sure, lots of their friends share these beliefs. But there's not an identifiable, super weird experience that's propping them up. Psychologists will say, you know, there's nothing kind of abnormal or pathological going on here. It's just that um, people have particular kinds of cognitive biases that are getting them to these beliefs. So, you know, they have a need for uniqueness, a need to feel special. And that's why they become conspiracy theorists. But what's really interesting about the literature on delusion is that they don't do that. They say that, oh, two people have the same strange experience, but only one of them becomes delusional. There must be something pathological in the person who becomes delusional. And I think that's really, really strange. You know, there are these other mitigating factors that can help us to understand why people come to hold
0: them. That's an interesting challenge to you, isn't it, Emma? If, uh, if delusional so- beliefs are entirely normal, where do we go clinically with that?
1: Well, do you know what, you've asked the wrong person, because my early research career, I worked with Daniel Freeman, who um, focuses on delusions around paranoia, which he kind of rephrases as threat beliefs. So belief, unfounded beliefs that you're under threat from other people. And his model, I think is, is maybe somewhere in between this, because he says that these beliefs, you know, people might have strange experiences. And then when they look for a way of understanding these experiences, as we've just said, what they do is they have kind of negative self-beliefs. So they expect that they might be targeted. They expect that they're the kind of person who maybe should be harmed or could be harmed. And unfortunately that gives them enough of uh, a, a reason to believe that their suspicions about being targeted might be true. And then as I said before about, you know, our beliefs form a lens that we see the world through. If you're seeing the world through a lens of I might be at risk here, you're more likely to find the dangers, you're more likely to interpret ambiguous experiences as threatening. And then you kind of confirm your beliefs that way and it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. So I think what's really interesting there is we've got this kind of idea of it's built on a normal, t- normal belief, but it exacerbates itself to such a point where all of a sudden it's become something that looks from the outside quite extreme until you sit down with the person and you really try and understand how this developed and and why they got to this point.
0: So it's, it's kind of normal cognitive processes getting you to a point which is eventually an abnormal place to be in. I want to ask both of you about how you ended up in your respective fields of research. I'll start I'll start with you, Emma. Did you always know that you wanted to do research in this area or that you were you always fascinated by the way the brain worked and uh, philosophy and perception? I started just being interested
2: in belief in general and it's called garden variety beliefs about, you know, cats on mats and grass being green. Kind of the boring stuff, right? And I was interested in the kind of biology of belief. So why it is that we form beliefs under particular constraints, how it is that we interact with our environment, something like that. And it just so happened that a colleague, when I was doing my PhD, said to me, have you thought about delusion? And I said, sorry, what's that? And and that was that. And then the, kind of the rest is history after yeah. that. So I went and
1: read some books and then got fascinated. Yeah. yeah.
0: And how about you, Emma? Similar
1: story, actually. I was working in a psychosis research group and we were carrying out a sort of small experiment alongside our our main clinical trial. And only one of the questionnaires showed any kind of response in this tiny experiment that we were doing alongside. And I sort of, well, maybe we should keep it in the main trial then if it's the only one that's doing anything. And about a year later, my supervisor reminded me that I'd made this suggestion and said maybe I should write up some of the data from this questionnaire. And the questionnaire was all about depersonalization. So when I went to go away and read about what this was and what we already knew, I realised that we didn't know very much and that really intrigued me and I wanted to advance the field to see if we could get some more answers for people.
0: And you've both highlighted something really important about research, which is that you're standing at the edge of knowledge and then working out how to push that knowledge further. You're noticing gaps. Mm -hmm. So you're learning enough about a subject to the point where you go, hang on a minute. Do we really understand this as much as we as we think we do and I think that came out a bit when we were talking about definitions earlier mm-hmm. that we've got these very neat definitions but when you actually start probing into them they're a bit too neat mm-hmm. um, Emma what would you really like to find out is there is there sort of a knotty question that you really want to get to the bottom of
2: yeah I I really want to return to the, the stuff I was doing my PhD on so the biology of belief and think about how delusion fits into that really natural thought is that delusions are kind of bad beliefs par excellence right they're like paradigmatic cases of biological malfunction right and i think i want to resist that i think i want to say something more like delusions are you know they're not great um but they're being formed in some really strange circumstances the environment isn't cooperating in the right way Mm. so we might distinguish between a kind of malfunction and a misfunction. So a heart malfunctions, if it, you know, if it fails to beat or if it, if it has a kind of transcription of a gene missing or something like that. And I am outside my area of expertise here. <laughs> um, and that's a kind of case of malfunction. Things aren't going the way they're supposed to and something's going wrong with the organ itself. But we can also think about cases where the heart's just not in the right environment for it to function. So if mm. you take a heart out of a body for transplantation and while it's in its cold box, it doesn't beat. Well, that's not a malfunction. It's just it's, it's not where it's supposed to be. Right. It's it's been taken out of its proper environment. And I think that we should say something about delusional beliefs along the same line. So these aren't things that are malfunctioning. There's no malfunction going on in the way the person's forming their beliefs. They're just in really terrible circumstances. They're just responding to these highly anomalous experiences. And those aren't the kinds of circumstances in which we evolved, right? In in which our beliefs were supposed to be responding. And so I want to kind of investigate how we contextualise delusional beliefs in the context of a biological
1: programme more generally, Mm. I think. And Emma, how about you? In terms of my own work... What I'm trying to do at the moment is develop a theoretical model, um, so a cognitive model of how dissociation works. So basically a map, because therapists do their therapy using a cognitive map, essentially. So I'd I'd really love to know what's in there. (laughs) Because, you know, for example, it looks like worry and rumination seems to be quite important in dissociation. And if I can find out whether that's really the case or whether I'm barking up the wrong tree... If that's really the case, then therapists know how to work with rumination and they know how to help people stop kind of going around in circles in their minds. So that would be a really obvious way to start treating dissociation. So if we could have a few more clues about what's actually involved, that would be great.
0: Thank you very much to to both of you. I'm going to um, wrap it up here. But as I do that, I wonder in the time it takes me to wrap it up, Emma, whether I can challenge you to do the Rubik's Cube. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You're escaping the challenge. Ooh. (laughs) So thank you very much indeed to Dr. Emma Sullivan Bissett and Doctor Emma Turnis. I'm Alice Roberts and the Curiosity Vault is a fresh air production for the University of Birmingham. The producers are Harriet Wells and Izzy Clark. Now, Emma. So you're following is it distracting for me to talk to you? No. Okay. Um, you're following a a very set way of doing this you've got a pattern that you stick to yeah exactly
2: and it will always it will always come out right so it's it's fairly easy to learn i mean once i tell you that it looks very unimpressive doesn't it because
0: (laughs) i'm impressed already she's got the the white side is done it's gone again though Um, but I can see these sides coming together. Uh,
2: So uh, it's a mistake to think in terms of sides. Oh, is it? Yes. Oh. So uh, trying to do the sides will never work. You have to do it by layer.
0: Yeah, because you're only going to do one. You'll only ever do one side, won't you? Yeah. My mind is
1: already blown. I can't keep up with this
0: it's it's getting there it it's is getting very close now been this is extremely a impressive a long time since i've done it oh my goodness <laughs> and it's not even an illusion she is actually here in the studio doing it i believe
1: that it's not a delusion or maybe it is <laughs> yeah
0: so it's not magic either it's i think it's science we are nearly there there's one little square there you go it's done <laughs> that is absolutely incredible thank you both so much in our next episode, we'll be venturing into the field of medicine to ask, how can we make progress curing cancer? If you want to find out more about University Birmingham research and even become part of it, there's a link in the show notes. And remember to follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts, so you
2: never miss an episode.